Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. I retired as a sergeant, Manhattan North Homicide Squad. And with me tonight, and on most nights, my co-host, retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm pretty good, Billy, and I'm excited to talk with Michelle. We're going to have a little uh, rap session here. I tell you the truth, man. I, uh, our former uh, producer, um, uh, what's his name? Andrew Steiner. I can't think of his first name anymore because I know so many Steiners. Andrew Steiner hooked me up with Michelle McPhee as a guest. I said, oh, my God, we'd love to have her on. And Andrew was our original producer when we were – shooting it in my living room, you know, and then we've come along 300 something episodes since then. But anyway, tell the audience a little about you, if you don't mind. And you know what I'll do? I'll put one of your photos on the screen so they can see uh, you in your working clothes there. There you are. Um, Michelle McPhee is a screenwriter and best-selling true crime author, five-time Emmy-nominated television investigative producer in Boston for ABC News, Award-winning columnist, contributing editor to Newsweek, and writer for Boston and L.A. magazines. She wrote episode five of Showtime's City on a Hill in season one and continues to consult for season two while writing her first HBO pilot, The Beast, based on a reporting contained in an upcoming book about the MS-13 street gang. McPhee spent more than six years investigating the Boston Marathon attacks, and that work is contained in her new book, Maximum Harm, The Zarnayev Brothers, The FBI and the road to the marathon bombing. My God, that sounds like a pretty damn good resume. Uh, wow. <laughs> what a resume. <laughs> and you were well, here as I'm, a... Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I mean, I think my favorite part of my resume is working at 1PP with, with all of you guys. Right. I was just going to say that. And for 10 years, you were the Daily News crime writer, right, for the uh, NYPD. And you t actually took up residence in, in one police plaza, right? They tried to kick me out, but I was in the shack on the second floor for years. That's uh, great. Then, Holding on for dear life. <laughs> I held on. I held on. You know, there was plenty of, uh, it was it was fun working at the shack because, you know, Phil, being from Brooklyn, I know you probably know Larry Salona, my nemesis from the post. And <laughs> there were some, there was some, you know, verbal exchanges and shoving matches. It was definitely a fun place to work in the shack because all of the competition back when you had reporters that actually did work and went out to crime scenes, converged in the same little tiny, you know, mouse infested office. You couldn't leave your bag on the floor at 1PP because you take home mice. Yeah. You know, Larry Salona, uh, I appeared in a couple episodes. Then that's actually how I met Bill, uh, The Perfect Murder. Uh, did, did you know Rick Torelli? I know Ricky very well. We were just okay. talking about it. The yeah, only so reason I got my DEA card is because I was not somebody who was bashing the cops on social media. Okay. Yeah, well, uh, Rick had uh, had me on the show, and I was on uh, three episodes. Bill was on about five or six episodes. But Larry Salona and I appeared on the same episode. I played a detective, and he did some narration uh, regarding the case that we were profiling. So, yeah, familiar name. It's a great show. Very Absolutely. great show. Thank you. Yeah. Michelle, are. you know, I want to uh, get to some of the things that we've been covering. And one of them, and we love to have your perspective as a writer, because a lot of these things, and also as an investigative reporter, but we have that case from down south, the Murdoch case, which is just, you can't bananas. make it up. You know about that case, right? Are you kidding me? That is a bananas. If I wrote that as a screenplay, this is why I'm out in Hollywood, just trying to sell some of our real stories 
to Hollywood. If I wrote that, no one would buy it because it sounds I'm so far-fetched. No, I had, I'm sorry. I had a little, a little technical difficulty there. I wanted to bring up a, a video of, um, there's about five or six different incidents in the Murdoch case, which fit the, um, the narrative. You can't believe this. You know what I mean? And there's, and one of them of course is his wife and his son being murdered, uh, a, a double shooting on that happened on June 7th. And before that in, uh, in 2018, his son, Paul, was operating a boat intoxicated and a 19 year old girl was, was killed during that. And he was set to stand trial for that. But before the trial happened, him and his mother were both murdered on the Murdoch family property, uh, a hunting lodge. And in 2015, a male named uh, Stephen Smith, who had some kind of relationship with one of the Murdoch sons, a, a, a allegedly a gay relationship, he was found dead in the middle of a road a few miles from their hunting lodge and alleged it was from a hit-and-run accident. But there was no sign of a hit-and-run. It was blunt trauma. And then, of course, we have um, Alec Murdoch setting up the shooting of himself. Uh, and it turned out it was his cousin that shot, allegedly shot him. Right. We don't know if we believe that. I ain't buying that one. And now the other thing which I, I was going to show you now is his maid died in 2018 in a slip and fall in his house. And there was a right a $4.3 million lawsuit. If you're counting, uh, that's five bodies so far. Right. Five. <laughs> there was right, a $4.3, excuse me, a $4.3 million lawsuit of which it turns out that it seems Alec had embezzled the money and hired an attorney to represent the family of Gloria Satterfield that was from his law firm or his one of his friends. So it seems like they were both involved in this. I'm just going to play a little bit of this, and we'll get the the, uh, the view of what happened. Welcome back. The sons of Alex Murdoch's former housekeeper are asking a judge to arrest him until they're paid the settlement in their mother's death. In an exclusive interview with Gloria Satterfield's son's attorney, Eric Bland told me he initially uncovered a $505,000 settlement. Then after filing a lawsuit, he uncovered a settlement that totaled millions. Bland said his clients have not seen a dime. Her sons are now suing, claiming that Murdoch has yet to pay out the $4 million settlement. Multiple lawsuits claim Alex Murdoch told the boys at Gloria's funeral that her fall was his fault and offered help with legal claims. Murdoch connected them with an attorney who they later learned was Alex's close friend. The only people that have made money in this case are Corey Fleming and his law firm, Alex Murdoch, who uh, falsely set up an account named Forge to mirror a settlement structure company out of Atlanta, Georgia called Forge Consulting, that's a company that all of us plaintiff lawyers, when we're going to do structured settlements for minors or people who have long-term medical issues, get their money out of time. You'll hear more of my exclusive interview with the Satterfield's attorney coming up on the 5 o'clock news. Wow. What do you think about that, Michelle? I mean, it's insane. This just makes you, it reeks of like small town you know, shenanigans. Uh, I don't even know how the family didn't realize that the lawyer was friends with this dirty 
lawyer. The whole thing is crazy. Right down to the fact, and I listened to you guys, of course, yesterday and talking about this case, and the idea that the highway patrol was put in charge of the homicide investigation for that dead kid at the side of the road was lunacy, wasn't it? And, and if you read some of the reports, the highway patrol was complaining that the, the, D, the DA was, you know, trying to shuffle blame onto them instead of, it was, it was just the whole case from start to finish is insane, starting with the, you know, obvious death at this 19-year-old girl. Didn't he try to blame his best friend for that too? Yeah, he was trying to say miniseries. Right, he was trying to say that his friend was driving the boat when it happened. Yeah, his his attorneys were pointing the finger at the friend instead of Paul being at the wheel of the boat at the time of the impact, which obviously caused the uh, the death of Mallory. But with the Stephen Smith case, when the highway patrol responded, they said this is clearly not uh, a highway accident, a motor vehicle accident or a pedestrian struck by a motor vehicle. They notified the homicide squad. However, the next day when uh, the body was removed to the morgue, uh, they uh, did an autopsy and the uh, coroner that did the autopsy ruled it as a uh, motor vehicle accident that claimed that uh, th the injury was caused by the mirror of a truck, I guess, because of the height of the injury in in, uh, in his head. There was some other factors. He was uh, walking along the highway. Uh, his car had run out of gas. So they, they pieced together a scenario that put it in the camp of a motor vehicle accident took the criminality out of it. Well, the criminality regarding a homicide anyway, but uh, uh, they, they try to make it look like it's obvious uh, some type of a, a pedestrian struck by a motor vehicle. But then when the double murder happened in June, there was evidence recovered somehow, somewhere intertwined in that double murder, which was the murder of Alex's wife and his, uh, uh, and his son, Paul, uh, that led them to reopen that investigation uh, in 2015, that 2015 hit and run, alleged hit and run uh, investigation now is being carried as, uh, I guess it's investigate a homicide. Michelle, like the alleged step and fall, right? Yeah, yeah, I'd like, Michelle, I'd like you just to shed a little light on how an investigative reporter could uncover a case like this where there's obvious improprieties going on with this law firm that's basically controlled this area of South Carolina for over 100 years. Well, you know, it goes back to the very original adage, follow the money, which is true in every single solitary case I have ever written about, whether it's the Boston Marathon bombing or the Craigslist killer, it's always about the money. And I think in this particular case, we're talking about a colossal amount of money that was supposed to go to the family of this woman. I, I don't even know where the 4.6 came from. Did he rip off an insurance company to get it in the first place? I, I think so. Yeah. I think something happened where they got awarded, but he had a fake bank account set up. So the money would go into this bank account purportedly yeah, for Gloria I mean, Satterfield's sons. Well, what, what is inexplicable to me is how the sons didn't make a, have a press conference saying, where's our money? Well, you know, Alex said that we got this settlement for 4.6 million bucks. Where is it? And it and you have to wonder if they were, if, I mean, the, one of the questions I would have as a reporter down there is, you know, was there any sort of collusion in this money? They rip off an insurance company. We're going to duke you, you know, 200 grand or 2 million. We're going to take 2 million. It does raise some questions about everyone in this town seems to be, have their finger in the pie and just a, willing to get a little bit money.
Well, if you see the way that the whole thing was structured based on that clip that Bill just showed, he got an attorney friend of his to represent the, the uh, uh, Miss Satterfield, Satterfield's family. And so the insurance company pays out and then they use this uh, bank account and they call it forge. I believe the reporter stated that a lot of times structured settlements go to a, uh, must be a corporation that sets up and, and uh, will distribute the funds called forge. So they, they were pretty cunning and tricky the way that they did it. Um, I think that it sounds to me, I mean, we'll have to see what the investigation yields, but it sounds like both parties were part and parcel to that uh, ripoff of that, uh, I think it was 4.3 or 4.6 million dollars. So I know this, the family didn't get it and that's terrible. Uh, and I don't think, terrible. and I said this in, in last night's show, I don't think if uh, none of these things happened with Alec, maybe this family would never got a dime, you know? Well, you know, he was also, uh, you know, as we said, if this was a, a series, if you were writing a TV series, he also was stealing money from the Murdoch law firm. From his own firm. Uh, yeah. From his own firm. Yeah. And in fact, before his wife was murdered, she had filed for divorce and had hired a forensic accountant to go over their finances. So She was following the money. She was. Following. Yeah, but I mean, besides his opioid addiction, us from us New Yorkers, we say, where's the Gumara? We haven't yeah. heard about that yet, you know? Where <laughs> is the Gumara? She hasn't perfect just yet, but I have a feeling there's going to be a perfect thing of a gumada. Unless Stephen Smith was somewhat of a gumada for the, you know, you have to wonder what. Right, we don't know about that. In fact, you know, that's an allegation that hasn't been fully investigated yet. But his mother is saying about time someone's investigating this as a murder because it was definitely no hit and run vehicle accident. For I mean, sure. there was no skid marks. There was nothing that to, I mean, as a homicide investigator, Bill, like, was there anything to indicate that there was a hit and run accident at that? No, time? they said it looked like blunt trauma. And, you know, the whole theory about the mirror, he'd have to be seven and a half feet tall to get hit with, with a, a mirror from a truck. And if that happened, he wouldn't be in the center of the road. He'd be on the side of the road. And there His would be body. more injuries than that. He had one Yes, of course. Yeah. Right? There, there was no debris from, if, if you strike a mirror, a human body strikes, uh, the mirror strikes a human body, especially in the head, uh, and inflicts that kind of an injury. There would have been some type of debris on the road. Like you said, no skid marks. And we saw the positioning of the body it was almost like across the double yellow line in the middle of the road. So if he was walking along the road, facing traffic, let's say, and he got hit with a mirror, uh, he would have probably been hurled into the, uh, you know, the, the, the side of the road, as opposed to the middle of the road. Now he would have had, no matter how he got hit, if he was walking along the side of the road, he wouldn't have been in the middle. I don't think his body would have wound up in the middle of the road, but obviously those are things that are all going to be looked at. And Bill, just one quick point about what you brought up. The wife goes to see an attorney, uh, to end her marriage. There's a, a forensic accountant is either hired or spoken to about doing uh, follow the money uh, investigation on this uh, on this Alec. So again, that screams motive. I said that a couple of times in the past already. The motive is right there, and uh, I'm sure that they're looking into all of those things. And uh, there's going to be a lot of twists and turns coming in this case in in the coming weeks and months. I'm sure. You know, the other thing, uh, Michelle, is when he stages that. Um so more, more like a self-inflicted gunshot wound, but he claims that he has, is on the side of the road changing a flat tire on tires that don't go flat, you know, 
<laughs> one hand. And, and you know, it, the whole thing makes no sense. And then someone gets, he gets in some car purportedly to take him to the hospital, but then he decides, you know something, I want a helicopter. So he calls a helicopter and the helicopter shows up and picks him up and takes him to a hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. Not, not, Atlanta, not Atlanta, but in Georgia. Yeah. So South Carolina, he was trying to evade the uh, investigation. So he has the helicopter fly him to, and you know, if you, if you get flown to a um, hospital by helicopter, if it's not an emergency, your insurance isn't paying for that. So you're talking 10 K to 15 K for that little ride to the local hospital, you know? Isn't that not, it reminds me of Charles Stewart. Do you remember the Charles Stewart case in Boston where he was the guy that went into a black neighborhood for a Le Mans class? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, like this non-existent black hooded man. You know, he created these race rides in Boston because he blamed the shooting death of his wife and unborn son on this, you know, phantom black guy. And obviously the cops are, you know, doing the right thing and trying to find the perp. And it caused all this uh, turmoil. But as soon as he got to Mass General at the time, I was working as like a, a secretary going to college at Mass General. And it was a rumor immediately that he had a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Like the where he got shot, he clearly shot himself in the side. And it would have been impossible for the bullet to have been fired, just like with Alec. It's like, it's, it's nuts. Now we say he hired someone. Obviously that guy shot himself. And he did it without thinking it through with the, you know, BS story about the flat tire, which is so dumb. Well, that's, that's mean, why he wanted to get himself off the scene. He didn't want to meet with investigators and have to show them everything, the wound and all. He got himself out of there. And then he, like Billy said, somehow or another, he, he managed to get on a helicopter and get completely out of that area and go to another state to be medically treated. So there was, uh, there was collusion, as they say there. Well, I want to show you who, this. Who just has a, a helicopter on standby? Because believe me, there's plenty of times I'd love to get out of L.A. real fast. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is the person that Alec hired to shoot him, allegedly. Oh, my God. I consider you one of my best friends. He's like a brother to me. That so-called brother is Alec Murdoch. South Carolina authorities say he asked Curtis Smith to shoot and kill him September 4th. The plan, according to SLED, to help Murdoch's surviving son, Buster, collect a $10 million life insurance policy. Instead, said what happened, so they arrested both of them. But where's the connection between the two? Through court records, we found out Murdoch represented Smith in a personal injury lawsuit back in 2010. Had to have three discs removed at the back and got rods and screws in every place of them. It's not fun. Smith says injuries from a logging accident left him permanently disabled. Talk to me about the pain. Oh, uh, it's, it's an everyday thing. I mean, it's every day. I know it's there all day long. Court documents indicate Smith took Oxycontin for that pain. But fast forward to this month. Authorities charged Smith with distribution of meth and possession of marijuana, a drug parallel to what unfolded during Murdoch's bond hearing. If anyone uh, wants to see the face of what opioid addiction does, you're looking at it. In the days after the shooting, Murdoch said he checked himself into rehab for substance abuse. Is Alex somebody that you cared about? Yeah, I say he's like a brother to me. I'd have done anything in the world for him, almost anyway. 
It just is just crushing to know that if it didn't got me nothing, nobody, especially him. Curtis says he feels betrayed. I guess so. Uh, I if I was uh, gonna shoot someone in the head and missed, you know. I mean, <laughs> I have one question for you, Michelle. He hires this guy to shoot him for the ten million dollar life insurance policy that was son was the beneficiary to. Why wouldn't this also be the case with his son and his and uh, his his, his wife. wife? Why wouldn't he I do mean, that? That's exactly right. It's almost like he set himself up. Look, look at that guy. He looks like he would shoot anybody. I mean, he's got a hairstyle. And he looks uh, like I he could shoot. Since 1982. And he looks like he could shoot the ass out of a rat at a thousand yards too. And he missed. <laughs> no, that's, that's why just look at that guy. He's, he's an obvious meth head and, and you could see he's, he's all messed up. But if you looked at Alex's, the back of Alex's head, when he was in that court appearance, the, they look like a red mark going down with this way, almost like he did it himself or had the guy do it. But it's very odd. I, I can't see how he hired the guy to kill him. And he doesn't kill him. He just grazes him. So like, oh, I missed. Let me, uh, you sure? I, you shoot him again. No, but who knows? It's just <laughs> sounds like a total, sounds like a total bullshit story in plain English. And the other thing is he says in that interview, I do anything for him. Almost. He says, now I think that's, he's pulling himself out of the trick bag or trying to yeah. for that double homicide. He might be involved in that double homicide. I mean, who knows? Who knows? I'm sure that the the, the investigators in the sled are are, uh, are looking heavily into that banana and uh, and Alec as well. I you mean, know, that was, wackadoodle. You have to wonder, like, who called it? First of all, where was the helicopter? Like, does is it Uber helicopter? I no, it was like yeah, it was that. yeah. He called it on the phone because it was from a company called Crash or something like that. Yeah, but he, care, he, no care, C A R E care. But he took off in a car. Somebody was driving him away from the scene, and then he got into the helicopter. Right, so, right, exactly. A quick exit. That doesn't make any sense. It's so crazy. Yeah. I mean, no, but when you're juiced up and the police are intimidated by you because of who you are, and there's two different agencies: there's Highway Patrol, there's all these different agencies. They're not going to ask the right questions, you know. You know, this well, family. We 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 see that going on right now in New York City a little bit. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, no, you, I, got, I, you got people with some juice that are like trying to take down some cops, perhaps. Are you referring to the FBI raiding the Sergeant's Benevolent Association offices today? I am indeed. Yeah. I am indeed. I, I just, you know, look, I, I think that as cops, we all know, and as somebody who, who has such highest, holds law enforcement in such high esteem, Nobody wants to see anybody who's dirty and you want people to be held accountable. But here's the question I have for you two. As I watch, you know, countless state troopers in Massachusetts get hauled off and taken an early slide on a Friday. I mean, how many FBI agents ever go to prison? None of them. And, yeah. I, know. and I know at least three of them that should. McCabe, Strzok, and Comey should have all went to prison. Oh, yeah. They, they, and I, and I could add another four. Yeah. There's another prosecutor in there, Bill, that was on the Mueller case, Andrew Weissman, but that's a story for another day. I have two words with regard to what's going on with Sergeant Ed Mullins. Political 
payback. He was outspoken about de Blasio, Cuomo, and a lot of different policies that have taken place over the last few years in New York City. This is political payback. I'm sure of it. 100 percent folks. I think it might folks. even be personal. It's personal. I mean, look, we don't yeah. want to go too inside baseball, but we all know that there was a photo of the mayor's daughter that was not flattering, that, that you know, the SBA got blamed for leaking. And, you know, they, this is the comeuppance. I that, agree. That sounds like motive to me. Yep. <laughs> Folks, if you're not uh, subscribed to Police Off the Cuff, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, ring that bell, give us a thumbs up. Uh, this is um, Michelle McPhee is our guest tonight. She's a great novelist, a writer. She's a was an, a New York Daily News beat reporter in charge of the whole all the reporters, and she has some amazing stories. I want to speak a little bit about because I know you spent six years writing about the Boston Marathon bombing. And to me, that is one of the most interesting cases. And one of the things I always wondered about being a New York City cop and knowing about the relationship between large police departments and the FBI, what was the relationship like between the Boston police and the FBI during that investigation? Can we say frosty, um, <laughs> unfriendly, not good at all? Uh, not even just the BPD, it's the state police, it's um, even the ATF had beef with the FBI after the Boston Marathon attacks. And a lot of it was because of the, you know, the secrecy that continues to be shrouded around this case. Half of the Zanayev case is still under seal, including the cost. We've spent so much money on this kid's trial and now his appeal as they try to save his life that the judge sealed it. So it's under seal how much money we spent on his penalty phase, uh, on his uh, guilt phase, and now on his ongoing appeal that's going all the way to the Supreme Court in a couple of weeks on October 13th. I mean, imagine that we spent so much money on this terrorist that they sealed it so that we can't become outraged by it. And, you know, my book really, <laughs> the FBI is at the center of it because, look, they had an open investigation into Zinaev that was sparked after warnings from the Russian FSB. Think about that in the current climate, right? The Russians warned us, hey, we got this guy, Tamil Zinaev. He's, you know, in contact with some really dangerous jihadi over here in Russia in the motherland. And we think he's going to come here and join the jihad. So the FBI had an open case against Tamil Zinaev in 2011. They interviewed him multiple times. And we're expected to believe that they have a photo of suspect Black Hat and they don't recognize him, that's ridiculous. You, you guys are detectives, I'm a reporter. If I interviewed you two today and you blew up the marathon in a year, I think I'd remember your face. Yeah, so they, they knew that they, these guys, uh, Tamalin and Zokar uh, Zarnayev, were bad guys, yet they didn't share that information with the police. And this was after 9-11, where the 9-11 commission said, this secret squirrel shit has to stop. And it has never stopped and probably never will stop because every time the FBI is asked a question about that, they say, oh, it's top secret. Oh, really? It's top secret. But I, how come Comey gave documents to a Columbia University professor? Wasn't that top secret? Sure was. Yeah. And why did McCabe live to Congress? And and think about this. The FBI, If there, I have a podcast out now that you can find at mayhempod.com. And in it, there are lawmakers from both sides of the aisle. You have Michael McCall from Texas, Republican, just as pissed off as, you know, Bill Keating from Massachusetts, just as pissed off as Hank Johnson. Like, so, so everybody in Congress is pissed off. Why? 
because the FBI doesn't show up. Can you imagine not showing up for court? So the FBI gets a subpoena from Congress, from the Homeland Security Committee, in the Senate and in the House, and they just simply do not show up. So it got so bad that a bipartisan delegation of lawmakers, federal lawmakers, had to go to Russia to get answers with Steven Seagal. Remember him from Hard to Kill? Talk about mullets. Like that guy, <laughs> that shot that dude in the head. Like, see, can you imagine that the FBI refused to cooperate with Congress? So they are forced to go to Russia, where the FSB is more helpful, with Steven Seagal from Hard to Kill. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. Just, you can't make that stuff up. It's just amazing. And, you know, Billy, a lot of the time. Just, uh, I just wanted to play this. Only glimpse of Jokar Zarnayev, this prison security video. Until now, on the day he was to be sentenced to die, this apology. I am sorry for the lives that I have taken, for the suffering that I've caused you, for the damage that I've done. And from him, this stunning confession. If there's any lingering doubt, I did do it, along with my brother. And affirming his Muslim faith, he added, I prayed for Allah to bestow his mercy upon the deceased, those affected in the bombing, and their families. I pray for your relief, for your healing. Zarnaya spoke without ever looking at the survivors and victims in the courtroom, some of them there to give victim impact statements. The mother of Crystal Campbell, one of three people killed in the twin bombing, saying, I don't know what to say to you. What you did to my daughter was disgusting. Afterward, many said they just cannot accept Zarnayev's words of remorse. He did his thing. He blew people up. He got what he deserved. Fukuro's son, Mark, was pierced by hundreds of bits of shrapnel. He is still suffering. He said that he was remorseful. I find that hard to believe. It really does not change anything for me because what he took from me, I'm never going to be able to regain. Zarnayev's lawyers say he will appeal his conviction. That could take years, possibly even decades. He will spend that time most likely on federal death row in Indiana, Terre Haute, Indiana, where he will be confined 23 hours a day to a small Spartan cell. Robin and David. You know what's, um, you know what's really disgusting? What they didn't show in that very first clip when he was walking around his cell, that was the day that he was arraigned. And he's swaggering into the courtroom like he was a rap star and his sisters are in the front row crying and he blew them a kiss. And later that afternoon, he went down into that cell, stood up on the bench and flipped the bird into the cameras for everybody to see. So that unremorseful piece of garbage giggled throughout that trial, smirked at his victims. Um, the former Boston police commissioner, uh, Willie Gross, actually was so enraged by his behavior that when he climbed off the stand, he literally whispered to a maggot when he was climbing off the stand. Like, the, the kid was infuriating. And so uh, this idea that he was remorseful or he was sorry is absolute nonsense. Because when he was convicted, my sources tell me, the lawyers went back, everybody was weeping and crying, except for Jahar. He could not care less. And by the way, he's at ADX Supermax suing us. This guy is getting stimulus checks in prison. He's at ADX Supermax getting stimulus checks from the federal government and using our money to sue us because the Bureau of Prisons won't let him wear the white hat that he is intentionally wearing around the prison to piss off the guards because it's exactly like the hat he wore when he detonated the bomb behind a row of children at the Boston Marathon.
You know, Michelle, I just want to, uh, there were some heroes in this too. And I just want to shout many, out many, many, many uh, to the Watertown police, who was a small little police department who banged it out with these two uh, savages who were throwing bombs at them, who got into a gunfight like you've never seen before. And one of my friends played the sergeant, the real, uh, in the movie Patriot Days, my friend Cliff Moylan. And he got to oh, say, I know, Cliff. Yeah, he, he got to say in that movie, welcome to Watertown, motherfucker. And, and I was like, Cliff, that's the greatest line in the history of cinema that you got to say that. And I, I apologize to forget the sergeant's name that he played. I've spoken to the guy on the phone. John McClellan. And that's it. That's it. John McClellan. I invited him John on the McClellan. show and a, a few, a few, um, you know, errors and we couldn't hook it up. Uh, but I, that oh, guy's you a, have to get him on. He is the he's a superhero, a superhero. He was at my house a couple of weeks ago. We had the big podcast launch. He was up on my rooftop in East Boston hanging out with us. And you know, it was really funny. You guys would appreciate this, but there were all these cops who showed up at the podcast launch. None of them had ever met each other and they've all been lied to by the FBI. And it was yeah. cathartic because we had no intention of like talking, but then I, I had to acknowledge them. And one by one, they all told their stories and that synchronicity of cops who didn't know each other, who were being fed a line of bullshit for years finally had a chance. I mean, I think for them, it was cathartic. One guy even got teary-eyed because it's like, I've been made to feel like a nutbag for years. And, and in reality, it's just, you know, we've been lied to and drift around and, you know, the state secret classification. I, I mean, there's just so much. It's disgrace. It's nonsense. disgraceful that they're even a law enforcement agency and they get to, to you know, Bill, I wanted to make a point about the FBI. Now you got a picture. The, the bombing goes down in Boston, the Boston Police Department's working on it. Then what happened in the coming days with uh, the Watertown Police and all of that, they were on the front lines dealing with all of this insanity, okay? Death, destruction, and then chasing these scumbags down and eventually getting uh, the one brother was killed and then getting the other brother. So now the FBI, listen, there's a place for them in any investigation like this. It's a terrorism thing, but they're not going to come in and sweep in and say, all right, we're in charge now and, you know, kick out all these heroes to the curb. And I know the Boston police commissioner, I could tell from the press conferences, there's no way that he relinquished, you know, the case to them. He stayed right in the thick of it. And so be it, you know, and they're famous for not sharing information because they're worried about corruption and different things like that. Meanwhile, they should look in their own backyard. Isn't that the pot calling the kettle black? Uh, Absolutely. You know, it's funny that you bring that up, Phil, because there was so much petty crap going on as people were processing the crime scene, like Boston police bomb squad cops were going through this horrible grisly scene. There's, you know, 17 amputees, the body parts are all over the road. There's, there's blood and shrapnel and broken glass everywhere. A guy would plug in his phone to charge it and the FBI would take it to make sure that they weren't taking pictures. You know, commanders were locked. They kept changing the code to the command center so that other cops couldn't get into it to use the bathroom. Petty, petty, petty nonsense. And Ed Davis, the commissioner you just referenced, he came on the podcast and he talked about on Tuesday, this is the first time ever that it's been acknowledged, but the FBI said forever they had, they didn't have photos until they released them. Conveniently, right after Obama flew out of Boston on Thursday, the 18th, the very day that Sean Collier would be killed. This is the kind of arrogance that went on. They had a press conference, you know, there was that interfaith service. Obama had his show at, at all these world leaders in one place. Everyone's crying publicly. 
He leaves, they have a press conference, they release the photos that Ed Davis said on my show that they had on Tuesday. So for two full days, we could have been looking for these guys. Remember, Jahar was a drug dealer at UMass Dartmouth. He was well known. Right. Tamerlan, they lived in a pretty busy city, Cambridge. They were active at the Y Crew, you know, MMA boxing gym. A lot of people knew these guys. They could have found him before. And this is what really motivated a lot of cops to help me in my investigation in my book, Mayhem, is Sean Colley would be alive today if they released those photos. And that's why cops are pissed off. And that's why I was motivated to write this book, because that cop was shot dead in cold blood three weeks from realizing his childhood dream of becoming a Somerville police officer. And the way he died was horrific. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. And they had the photos and they lied about it. And Commissioner Davis told the story how he's in a meeting with these big shots and the U.S. attorney. And he said, look, we got to we got we got to get these photos out. We got to get these to my cops. What if one of my cops gets hurt? And they said, no, no, no. The, you know, the the someone in the DOJ doesn't want him released. And and Ed Davis said, look, I want that person's name. And I have a couple of guesses who it is. I haven't been able to find out. But I think you might have mentioned them already tonight. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, if you know, if somebody gets hurt, I'm going to say that this is the person who said not to release the photo. So right there, there should be look at and I, and there were uh, there were dozens and dozens of FBI agents who did an amazing job. They drove from all over the country. They right. slept in their cars. They worked their asses off fine. But there's no accountability. That's what's so infuriating. It's very clear now after years and years of investigating this that Tamalin. Zanayev, the older brother, the dead one, was a moss crawler, which is a program that you guys are familiar with because it was started by Ray Kelly after 9-11. So that terrorist interdiction unit, it worked very well. What was the FBI's one goal after 9-11? Find Muslim informants. And Tamalan Zanayev was the perfect recruit. He was promised citizenship, and when he didn't get it, he got mad and he blew us up. He got even. He got even. And you want to know something? That's probably why the picture was held, because they didn't want egg on their face that they knew who he was. And, you know, when you go back to 9-11, there was surveillance on some of the hijackers, and, and that's, that's I'm sure, what it was. And it cost that poor young cop his life. It's Joe, Joe Murray, thank you so much for the 499 Super Chat. Hi, Bill, Phil, and Michelle. And the wonderful police off the cuff community, please be vigilant about our fundamental freedoms, privacy, and our beloved constitution. You can't, uh, we take it from you, Joe. Absolutely. Rita Schaefer, thank you for the 499 super chat. Love seeing so many of the same true crime lovers in the chat. Police off the cuff is the best. Thank you so much, Rita. I want to say something also, another shout out was that the Watertown police, had they not, uh, basically won that gunfight and that bomb fight, the Zonaev brothers were on their way to Manhattan, to Times Square, uh, with the bombs and all the other munitions they had to kill people. And these Watertown police are superheroes in my book. I think they did an amazing 100%, 100%. job. You know? And I just want people, because people don't know this whole story. They really don't. Yeah. You know, News media has the 24-hour news, and people don't read books like yours. Oh, Michelle, what's the name of your podcast? People are asking. Uh, it's called Mayhem with Michelle McPhee. But some cops say it should be Mayhem is Michelle McPhee. <laughs> Michelle, I got a quick question for you related to what we were just talking about with the photo. Now, you as a reporter, a press conference goes up. They throw out the photo. What are you going to ask about that photo? Because this is what I think might have to do why they didn't hold it in. What would you ask about that photo? Would you ask where'd you get it from? Well, here, here is a very interesting story about that. 
So that video of the two brothers walking down the street. Now remember, they set up an entire cruise terminal to process all the evidence and they had tegabytes of you know cell phone video. The only video that was not seized by the FBI, but was actually recovered by the Boston police, a guy named Sergeant Mike McCarthy, who is a very well-respected, he runs the brick now, he's, and he, he has a, he's essentially what you two were. You know, he has a command of a, of, we don't call him precincts, but he has command of a division. Um, he got a call from the owner of Whiskey's Bar and Grill on Boylston Street, who said, hey, you know, I went through my security surveillance video, and I think there's something you guys might want to see. So the reason we have the images that we have of the brothers walking down the street is not because the FBI recovered it. It's because the BPD went and picked it up from the owner of the bar of whiskeys that's right there on Boylston Street. So even that was a BS story. And, oh. and again, let's go back to the very basic premise. We are talking about a guy who had an open case with the FBI, who the FBI admits was interviewed several times. And he wasn't recognized by the agent assigned to the elite counterterrorism unit. So you're telling me there's two schools of thought. The counterterrorism agent is so ineffective that he didn't recognize somebody he had an open case on for months who he interviewed multiple times or, or, and I think it's the latter. You're right. This guy was on their payroll and after Whitey Bulger and Mark Rossetti. And if you listen to the podcast, you have Chuck Brassley saying this directly to Mueller. Mueller didn't show up to answer questions at a marathon hearing, but he had to answer questions at a budget hearing. And remember, when did Mueller quit? Not long after the Boston Marathon bomb. When did Janet Napolitano quit, the head of the Department of Homeland Security at the time? Well, she flubbed her way through a congressional hearing. Hamada, hamada, hama. How did Tamalin Zanaya get in and out of the country while he was on two terror watch lists? I mean, how does that happen, Janet Napolitano, Miss Secretary? She said, oh, I have to answer that in a classified setting. Yeah, right. Excuse me, I love that. In public. I that love classified that. Setting. Yeah. Classified. She quit. And then, you know, Richard Dolores, and, you know, you mentioned Patriot's Day, great movie, and Cliff Moylan, who I know. And uh, Is it a small world, Michelle? You know where I is. met Cliff Moylan? I met Cliff Moylan seven years ago taking a stand-up comedy class for six weeks, and that's how I met him. We, we stayed in touch, and, in fact, He's the one that just hooked me up with uh, Chaz Palminteri to get Chaz Palminteri on the show because Chaz Palminteri is Cliff Moylan's uh, acting coach. So it's such a well, small I, world, you know. Uh, the Kanab, thank you, know you for how, the – You know how I met him? How'd you meet when him? I lived at Mulberry and Grand. I was living at Mulberry Grand when we were doing City on a Hill because, you know, I was a writer on that show, City on a Hill. He walked into a diner on the corner. You know where the gun store – the old school gun store – Javino. Javino's, yeah, yeah. And across the street, there's that diner. So we, I was having breakfast, and he walked in wearing the Watertown police shirt. And so I'm like, I, I would have known him if he was on Watertown, but I'm like, do you have a relative on Watertown police? He goes, no. He goes, I played Sergeant John McClellan. And, and, and Cliff is from Boston. Yeah, from Boston. <laughs> it just, it's amazing, right? I just want to shout out to someone else in the chat. The Kanab, thank you so much for the $25 super chat. And you say, thank you, Bill and Phil, loving the shows and the awesome police off-the-cuff chat family. Thank you so much. Really, We really appreciate you guys. Uh, there's a few more in the chat that uh, life is short. I need to get Michelle's book. It's called Mayhem, right? Is that correct, uh, Michelle? Mayhem. The one, Mayhem, yes. That's about the Boston Marathon bombing. Uh, Evelyn Albrecht, thank you for, for the 499 Super Chat. Ryan Investigative Group, Bill Ryan. 
What a knowledgeable and insightful guest. Michelle McPhee is a tenacious investigator. I enjoy her book and books and her podcast. You know, Michelle, we're going to have to, Angela Eng, thank you so much for the 499 Super Chat. Um, I can't read your whole sign. Petition to Equisearch, some loot. Um, you know, one of the things, Michelle, we're going to have to have you back on because we can't possibly pick your brain uh, enough in one episode to, to satisfy the uh, I know off, it. I know the it. police off the cuff fans. But I also want to get to, um, we want to speak Come a little bit. No, well, we'd like to get is. to that some other time, but I want to talk Gabby about Petito. Uh, yeah, Gabby Petito. Oh, and yeah. there's been some new information out. I'm just going to put um, uh, a, a short video up on the screen, and we're going to we're going to talk about this for a second, and we'll get we'll get into this a little bit. Um, few developments today. Tonight in the investigation into the death of Gabby Petito and the search for her fiance, Brian Laundrie. We are now learning Brian flew home to Florida five days after the encounter with the couple uh, that they had with the police in Moab, Utah. Laundrie's attorney says his client flew from Salt Lake City to Tampa on August 17th. He then flew back to Salt Lake on August 23rd. His attorney says Laundrie went home to get some items and close out a storage unit. Laundrie was last seen three weeks ago. Also that was never confirmed. There was some information that he had flown home, but you know we don't report anything on police off the cuff unless it's either confirmed by an official source, either by the police or by his attorney or, or the family's attorney. So that's confirmed now that he actually flew home. And the, the date in question with the Moab police where that incident occurred, where many people, Monday, many Monday morning quarterbacks Yep. have said that the Moab police should have locked somebody up and that potentially could have uh, prevented the homicide. We watched that uh, in interaction numerous times, and Phil and I both felt that the Moab police were very, very professional. And if anyone was getting arrested based on the information that we initially had, it would have been Gabby because she was the primary aggressor. However, later on, more information came in 9-11 calls that we weren't initially privy to, that so, there was a witness that had seen him smack her. So that would have changed the whole thing for me as a boss responding to the scene. And what I probably would have done was arrested both of them. But would have that yeah. would that have prevented the murder? Would that have prevented that? I don't know. I, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know. Well, what, what would have prevented Ryan Laundrie from fleeing, though? And look, we both we all love law enforcement, but I do not know how that kid was not under surveillance. Like, if this was your case, wouldn't you have some patrol guys just watching him around the block? You know, how we, we discussed that, too. 100%. That was a huge faux pas that they didn't have. You know, at the time, though, they used that asinine uh, phrase that they used to appease the media. He's a person of interest. You know, he's not a suspect. He's a person of interest. No, I, to me, he was a damn suspect. The minute he drove her van back, used her credit card, and she's laying dead in a field, you know, he was a suspect. I, there's quite a few things. There's, go ahead, Michelle. I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
No, no, go ahead, Phil. Honestly, I'm not. I was going to say there was quite a few things that were uncovered earlier today. Cassie Laundry, which is Brian's sister, she was the one that was talking about. She had protesters on her uh, in front of her home. She went out and she talked with them, and she was the one that divulged that he had traveled from the 17th. Uh, I guess he was in Wyoming and he traveled back to Florida and then on the 23rd, he went back. Now they're saying that he went to empty out a storage facility or whatever. There was something going on there. I don't know exactly what transpired, but you know, you have the, the incident on the 12th, then you have him leaving the, uh, leaving her and she allegedly stood in a hotel. I believe that she contacted her parents and they sent her, uh, they sent her Uber Eats and there was a couple of things. I guess they must have sent her money. She was in a hotel for that period of time, allegedly. Now, when he goes home, what does he tell his family? I had a fight with her or I got a, we, we don't know exactly what went on, but I watched Dr. Phil earlier today. It was a great episode, both uh, Gabby's mother and stepfather as well as the father and stepmother they were all on with the attorney and some really, I mean, if, if you're not emotionally attached to this case, Watch the Dr. Phil episode from earlier today. There's going to be another one tomorrow. Um, I was in tears on two or three separate occasions. If you didn't fall in love with Gabby Petito uh, from seeing her on the news previously, you will definitely fall in love with her now. I mean, it's just, and when you see the emotion from the parents, I don't know how they could sit through that, but there were some pretty interesting things learned. For instance, uh, uh, the stepfather was in uh, the area where she was found, uh, the FBI contacted him, the hotel that he was staying at, they were actually cooperating with him. They provided a conference room and he was able to contact everyone involved, you know, I guess his wife and then uh, Gabby's dad and stepmother in, uh, who were in New York. And they were able to identify Gabby through a, a specific article of clothing. That's how they were able to so quickly say it was her. And the lawyer interjected and said, they didn't say what it was. I believe the stepfather said it was a sweatshirt or a shirt, but the lawyer said it was a specific article of clothing that was local. I think what he meant by that either it was local to where she was from in New York, maybe, or local to Florida. I'm not exactly sure, but that's how they were able to identify her right away. That was a good piece of information. Um, and then to hear, and, and I'm going to refrain from referring to the laundries in a negative way because uh. I said that. As much as I, I want to, I'm going to refrain from it because I don't think it's professional. However, they talked about the contact that they did with that family. I'm, I'm talking about Gary's parents and step-parents. They were all intermediately calling, texting, and they were getting nothing back. That is atrocious. It's disgusting. It nauseates me. How did they not at least say, look, Brian's back in Florida with the van. They didn't know. The mother revealed this today on the show. They did not know that he was back in Florida until the 11th when they reported her missing in New York and the cops went there and the police told them the van is back and he's there too. They thought at the time that both of them were missing. So, and then one other wow. thing I'm going to get, I know I'm going on a little bit, but there was one other point and Gabby's father made this point and it was so earth shattering. He said, what has this family done to find their son? They did one thing. They reported him missing to the police. We've grabbed every camera that we can get in front of. We traveled, all of us together, traveled to you, traveled all over the place to try and find our daughter. They did nothing. And that speaks volumes. And if you watch the episode, 
Dr. Phil said some pretty smart things to the family of uh, Brian Laundrie that they're not helping him. They're making themselves look bad. They're putting themselves at risk. They're putting him at risk. And he used his experience as being, uh, he worked with, with uh, lawyers on, uh, on uh, trials with juries when they would address juries that have mock trials. And he said, there's no uh, possible way you can portray yourself any worse to a jury than what you're doing right now. And he actually addressed the family. He addressed Brian. It was a great episode. And I think that uh, hopefully uh, they'll come to their senses. And look, I, I know it's their kid. I get it. Believe me. You want to protect your child, at, your children at all costs. But this is way beyond that now. This is way beyond this. Not going away. He's wherever he is. And, and it's clear he's on the run. So uh, they got to they gotta put their heads together and uh, – they got to just, you know, cooperate and, and, and have him turn himself in. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the other thing is, and I find this a little bit uh, tough, and I understand why law enforcement would not release it, but they still have not released the cause of death. They released the fact that this is a homicide, which that simply means death caused by another, but they have never released um, the cause of death. And that's very important, and they may be holding that, close to the vest because they, well, look, they can't question him when he's brought in anyway. He has counsel, so they cannot question him. So they may just be using that so that they can present their case in the best way. But at some point, I think they sort of have to release that. That That is pretty unusual. Wouldn't you say, Michelle, the fact that they haven't uh, released the body. They haven't come up with an actual cause of death. That seems odd to me. I mean, Bill, Bill, I'm sure agrees as well. What do you think, Michelle? I, I mean, listen, the longest I ever had to wait for some sort of, you, you get, you get the manner of death too. It's homicide. And the, you had the, a great episode with the former Emmy in New York city. The longest I ever waited was five days. They have to give it up. And this is where you, if reporters are important. I would be hounding the medical examiner's office and the police department putting in a FOIA request every day because they're entitled to that information. That's public information. Well, and Michelle, it's not, it's not a police department. It's the FBI again. The well, FBI. there you go. <laughs> well, but you, but you, you would go. think that, you know, it, it, this murder occurred in Wyoming. So you would think the Moab police would circumvent the FBI and say, no, this is our case. Because we're the local jurisdiction. I know. Remember, and, remember how and, many other women were murdered in Wyoming that you don't hear anything about that the FBI is supposed to be tracking down too. It, it's you know, funny you have all those up. Native American women that are missing and, and found dead or just never found at all. And the FBI is in charge of that case too. It's funny you brought that up, Michelle, because I left that out from the episode that I watched earlier today on Dr. Phil. They were talking about the attorney was mentioning that. There were two or three other people, I think a total of four missing women in that area, but there were two or three that actually kind of fit. One for sure was very close to Gabby, but they used the article of clothing to identify her. And I think that that was uh, pretty telling. Uh, so again, the FBI holding back and I just uh, not releasing the cause of death, I think is one thing, but they're not releasing the body. That's uh, that's very odd to me. And I know it was probably decomposed and stuff like that. And they, they want to do further examination, I guess, but it's, it's, it's a couple of weeks now. I think it's just kind of odd, you know, that, uh, well, the, uh, Phil, the, the, the homicide or they, they discovered the body on the 27th of August. 
So that it's been a long time. It's been yeah, a very that's long, a time. long time. Yeah. Uh, Rita Schaefer, I mean, thank you so much for joining the uh, the YouTube, the Police Off the Cuff family on YouTube. You know, Phil, I just want you to do a quick uh, read of uh, our favorite attorney's um, commercial sure. here. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Glad to have you back, Joe. He's in the chat tonight feeling better recovering from COVID. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. That's jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. That's 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at Joe at jmurray-law.com. That's Joe at jmurray-law.com. You know, Joe, I could see Michelle writing this information down, so you probably got a new client. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Joe, can't wait. He, he's great. He's, great. he's great. Joe is great, but when we have him on the show, he always plays devil's advocate. He always takes the other side. He, and Joe's a retired NYPD police officer also. and has a, He has a great story about how he became a lawyer, but we need oh. all sh- we that's, need a whole that's a show. That's a right. Story. We need a whole show to go into yeah. that. So we're not going to go into that right now. But you know, I also have um, a, a short video on. Um, let me put this on the screen. Uh, on the Brian, Brian's sister. From those social media comment sections, if you use hashtag AJB, hashtag AMASA, or hashtag AWALT here, we're going to play back some portions of the video here, some portions of the confrontation that occurred here yesterday at Lakewood Ranch here in Florida between protesters and, of course, Cassie Laundrie and her husband here. But let's first get some new details here from uh, Josh Benson, who has been talking to attorney Stephen Bertolino here on Twitter. Uh, this is a screenshot here from Josh's phone. Josh, who you'll see tonight, everybody on our newscast here on WFLA News Channel 8. And I will read this here as follows. Josh asking this question here. You can see there the timestamp today at 1243 uh, Eastern time saying, can you please send me the explainer about the flight Brian took? Thanks. And then from Stephen Bertolino, Brian flew home to Tampa from SLC, Salt Lake City, on August 17th and returned to Salt Lake City on August 23rd to rejoin Gabby. To my knowledge, Brian and Gabby paid for the flights as they were sharing expenses. Brian flew home to obtain some items and empty and close the storage unit to save money as they contemplated extending the road trip. Again, this is from Josh Benson on Twitter. Josh, who's been in contact with attorney Stephen Bertolino, who, of course, represents uh, Brian Laundrie here. Let's just start here with the with your initial reaction, Masa and Walt here. Masa, starting here with you. Uh, this is now new. The timeline here is getting filled in by the day. The timeline is indeed getting filled in by the day. The first I heard that Brian uh, had returned uh, from the trip left Gabby was during that video where Cassie Laundrie and her husband were confronted outside of their home with their children inside the home. They were confronted by protesters. And in that, I did a rough log of that roughly 20-minute excerpts that were released by protesters to News Nation. And uh, the protesters asked, Brian flew back on the 17th. The dad paid for the ticket. 
And the sister said that she saw him on the trip. She confirmed that Brian flew back on the 17th as the lawyer has now also confirmed as well. And she said that there was no sign of trouble. In fact, Cassie Laundrie said that during Brian's short trip home from Salt Lake City, that she FaceTimed with Gabby and Brian was acting normal, just talking about where they had been and where they were going. That's information that law enforcement and the FBI surely had way before the media had. And, and why wouldn't yeah. you release that? So there's somebody who was on his flight that might have noticed something. Somebody who, you know, saw her alone or didn't see her alone. Like there's... I, this holding information and not sharing it with law enforcement and not sharing it with the public, I don't see how it's beneficial in any way whatsoever. Well, did you see in the in the uh, text message that the lawyer sent, he definitely covered his client there when he says, well, they were sharing expenses that they paid for the trip. It was probably her card. I'm, I'm oh, venturing to say that it was her credit card that paid for that flight. And, uh, you know, what happened in that period of time? I'd like to have an answer to that. Uh, and then, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, the 11th is when they finally realized that he was back. So there was from the first that he was back in Florida to the 11th. They had an 11 day running start to cover things up, plan for his escape. And, uh, you know, there, there's and maybe things were going on in that period, that five day period from the 17th to the 23rd. He could have been doing things to uh, facilitate uh, an escape. It could have been planned all along. So God only knows uh, what happened in that time, in that period of time. You know, Joe Murray is keeping true, but Joe, thank you for the 1999 super chat. But he's being the antagonist again. He says, I disagree, brother. Brian Laundrie is the most hated and most hunted accused unauthorized access device perpetrator in the world. In my opinion, <laughs> presenting that bogus charge is an abuse of power and against the rules of ethics. Well, Joe, I'd have to disagree with you because in, in the detective squad, Me we too. used to do that. We would do that all the time to put uh, a homicide perp on ice, keep him where we knew where he was and build our case. And that's surely, I think what the FBI was trying to do with this, use this, in an effort to have something to arrest him on, put him inside and build their case as he's cool in his heels in, in Bill, jail. I got well, so, I got so hold on. Go ahead. Go go sorry, ahead. Phil. No, go well, ahead. I just have a question now. If, if, if the FBI was in charge of this from the time that she went missing, then it's really on them to keep him under surveillance in the first place. I don't think they were in on it right from the beginning. I think they were enlisted when things started to blow up. I don't know for, for fact, but it sounds, I was told that, and, and this really has to be confirmed that they tried to report her that the, the, the stepfather who lives in, uh, I'm sorry, the father who lives in Florida, um, I'm getting a little confused here. Gabby's father lives in Florida. He tried to report her in the Northport Police Department as missing when they found out that she was not at, at the house. And they were told you have to report her missing in New York. And then a detective in the Nassau County Police Department, I believe it was, took the report, notified them. And that's when they went to the house. So there was there was some things going on that really haven't been brought to the surface. Um, and I Phil, think that Phil, let me just let me just mention something about police procedure. Uh, missing persons reports are taken, uh, recorded in the residence of the missing person. Right now, she had been living with uh, Brian Laundrie's family for two years in Florida. So therefore, that yeah. report should have been taken there. 100%. She didn't. She didn't live in Blue Point anymore. So. I, from what I understood, a detective out in Blue Point 
somehow got the detectives in Florida to take this report. So you know how police departments can make it difficult for people to make a missing person report, especially if someone's over 18. Oh, they're allowed. Mine is foul play. They're allowed to go wherever they want. We're not taking this report. And then they'll give you the old thing. Oh, how long have they been missing for? Immaterial. That doesn't mean anything. That's how cops will jerk you off too, is to say, oh, she hasn't been missing long enough. You know, that's yeah, not that true. 24 hour thing. That's total. Right. There is no time. Is yeah. Right. But that's how they jerk you around. Yeah. And I'm sure her family got jerked around with who was going to take that missing person report. And it should have been the Florida police all along. I got a comment about what Joe Murray said. I love Joe. He's a great friend. He's a terrific attorney. I really love the guy, but I got to disagree with him about it. Uh, what he said, the last comment about the, the the charge being a BS charge. I had a guy wanted on a, of a homicide, a 79-year-old woman, brutally murdered. We had location of him is in Atlantic City. It happened in Coney Island. We knew where he was. We went out to Atlantic City and we held him on a bullshit warrant. He had a trespassing summons that he didn't answer. We held him on it. We went back to New York, got an arrest warrant, went back three weeks later and extradited him. We knew where he was. We had him in, in custody, wasn't going anywhere. And it's just a tactic to, you know, get a hold of the guy. I think by them doing that, the feds, it put it out, you know, through the federal system. He's wanted on a federal warrant. Uh, you know, there's no question any law enforcement officer anywhere in the world can put their hands on Brian. He could be held. So I think it's a great tactic. I got to disagree with Joe. I love him, but I think he's wrong about this one. A uh, duty, Ron. Thanks for the $10 super chat. And duty, Ron gave uh, Joe Murray a little rib. Great guest and awesome coverage. Police off the cuff, real crime stories. Joe Murray, you're fired. He sounds like Donald Trump. You're fired. <laughs> well, you know something? Any any content creator on YouTube that has 1.7 million views on a single episode, I think he can say whatever he wants in someone's chat, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and listen, just it's a difference. It's a difference of uh of opinion. And he's on he's on the defense attorney side, and I get it, but uh I'll well, do Joe, Murray, Joe, Joe Murray's not letting go. He says, That's right, Michelle. The great and powerful and unaccountable FBI has egg on its face for Brian Laundry's disappearance during a, a camping trip. Said we're all in agreement <laughs> on that. that, is no question about that. Key word is unaccountable. There's no accountability for them ever. It, and that's it's what sickening. I it's get really mad about. You know, Michelle, you're right. Because if you do, if you would have did something like that in a local police department or the NYPD, you'd be walking a footpost in Staten Island by uh, Tony and Tina's pizza shop. You know <laughs> what I mean? If you get what an extra scoop of ice cream on your cone as a cop in NYPD, you got 30 days in the street and they don't That's have right. any accountability. <laughs> it was just a perception that uh, from someone that was standing online that you got extra ice cream because you were a cop, you know? Was, yeah, they, we, uh, they we have some of that. You, it's, you know, think about this, right? Speaking of cops and what would happen in a report, uh, Tamlin Zaniyev is the prime suspect in an unsolved triple murder in Waltham, Massachusetts that happened on the 10-year anniversary in Ireland. And one of my sources called me and said, McPhee, it looks like an Al-Qaeda training video in here because they nearly decapitated these three MMA fighters. They sprinkled the body with drugs. There was money left behind. So it looked like it was the 10-year anniversary in 9-11. Well, we now know that Tamlins and I have committed that murder with another Chechen kid who fled town that very night for Florida. And they're interviewing him in May, you know, a few weeks after the Boston Marathon attack, the FBI and a couple of cops 
Uh, one cop left the room during this interview. We don't know why. Another cop was tying his shoe, so he didn't see anything. But during this, the FBI agent shoots this guy multiple times, Ibrahim Todashev. Now, in the initial report, it said that the perp, Todashev, charged at the FBI agent with a pole. The next report said it was a broomstick. And now, if you read the court filings in the Supreme Court, this is the highest court in the country, it's now suddenly a samurai sword. Can you, as detectives, imagine a scenario where the weapon that prompted you to shoot a suspect dead has changed three separate times in official documents? What would happen to you guys? The FBI would come into the case and charge us with perjury. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's called perjury. It's called perjury. <laughs> Oh my God! Well, well, Michelle, you know the case of uh, the three-four anti-crime, right? The local motion and Michael O'Keefe, and uh, yeah, one of them, I one do. of them actually went to prison, a federal prison, for a year for lying to the FBI. They they got him in a perjury trap, and they tried to do the same thing to Michael O'Keefe, who was in the shooting with Kiko Garcia and the whole thing, and. Yeah. He was told not to go to court in uniform to wear a suit and don't you dare take plead the fifth. His lawyer said, wear your uniform and plead the fifth every single question. And he did. And he walked out of that courtroom because they were looking to put him in a perjury trap, too. Uh, it's disgusting. Yeah, there was, a, there was a Boston cop named Harry Byrne I wrote about years ago, decade, more than a decade ago, who some Harvard kid with connections, a juiced up kid, some, uh, smacked, I'm sorry, spit in this cop's face. So needless to say, the cop got heated and smacked him. Now, I'm not saying the guy shouldn't lose his job. This is a bad thing. You know, you don't can't smack kids around. But he went to prison because the FBI put him in a perjury trap about lying about whether or not he smacked this kid in the face. The kid who had it coming, by the way. Mm. But wouldn't would surprise you to hear that the, the kid in that case, his dad worked in the Department of Justice. No, it doesn't so Harry Byrne went to solitary confinement for like five years for slapping that, a kid in that, the face. That's disgusting. That's really disgusting. Joe Murray keeps giving me money, so I'm going to keep reading what he says. <laughs> Thanks for the 499 <laughs> super chat. But what are they going to do when they get him? Besides giving him discovery and access to their files, very foolish and sloppy. Joe, you're unrelenting. You're like you're the boxer who's going to the body and you ain't going to quit till the guy lowers his hands and you hit him with that left hook and knock him out. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I, like it. I like it, Joe. Yeah. You, you know what though? I, I, I don't, I know what he's getting at, but you know, listen, it's nobody cares about the uh, unauthorized use of the electronic <laughs> device. That's not a, a charge that's going to go anywhere. It's all about putting their hands on him and building the murder case. And, I know that Joe, you know, he's a constitutionalist and he's got uh, issues with overreach of the government as well as I do. I do. I believe me, I really do. And I'm sure Bill does. And I'm sure you do too, Michelle. But uh, in this th this particular case, I think it's a very smart tactic having an arrest warrant out there for whatever they could. I don't care if it's, you know, jaywalking. It's something they could put their hands on them for and hold them. And then we'll work on the murder case. That's the way I feel about it. But Phil, well, here's, the, here's the issue. I think it's doubtful that that kid is in the country. He had so much time to get the hell out of here. He I, listen, he had, any, he had time. And anything's possible, but there was there was nine one one calls over the last few days about the Appalachian Trail, and Bill and I were skeptical about it. The nine one one caller sounded authentic. He did meet somebody. He describes detail. He believes it to be that it was Brian, but 
earlier today on, I'm going to reference the show again on Dr. Phil, the family of Gabby said that he was very familiar with the Appalachian Trail and that both Gabby and Brian would go there for two or three days at a time and camp out in different areas of the Appalachian Trail. So I don't think I don't think he's out of the country. I could be wrong. Anything's possible. He could be on Mars by now with all the head start he got on law enforcement. But I think he's he's uh I think that that probably might be a good lead. I mean, we'll have to wait and see what shakes out about it. But somewhere close to the east part of the country, I think, is where he's going to wind up being captured. You know, I'm Michelle, I agree with you. I think he's out of the country because 911 calls don't mean shit. When I was responding to the World Trade Center, every other minute there was a bomb threat. Really? People calling yeah. in bomb threats after the buildings came down? So the 911 calls mean nothing. And I think that, you know, this guy, Dog, he's just inventing shit so that he can, uh, you know, there should be a guy from Harlem called Cat. And he should go. He should go search his dog and his cat. And cat, I bet you, I bet, you, I bet your cat's gonna find Brian Laundry, you know, because yeah. he's much better than dog, because he's from Harlem, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he can dress you know up what? like. <laughs> go ahead, Michelle. I I want to know who these parents are, because I'm with you. Like, it's really disgusting that you have somebody living under your roof, and how do you not have some sort of empathy? For her parents. Like, I just, that's the part of the story that bothers me the most. Are those, I mean, I'll say it, dirtbag parents that seemingly don't, how could you not have compassion? Especially after she was found dead. How do you not call them and say, you know what, we, we screwed up. We, we should have been more cooperative. I mean, but nothing, nothing is worse. I, I mean, look, we all come from, I lived in Brooklyn a long time. I'm from Boston. This is when the old school justice you kind of miss those days, right? Where someone yeah. would just show up at their door with a baseball bat and say, tell me everything <laughs> you know. Yeah. Don't you feel like you just want to send someone there with a bat? Yeah, it's, well, you know, street justice. The Brooklyn's coming out now, Bill. The Brooklyn's, yeah, the Brooklyn's coming out. Yeah. Oh, I like that. You see what's at my door. Uh, my home depends. Good on girl. Good That's girl. right. <laughs> Mamachi, thank you for the $5 super chat. That family sat around the campfire while Gabby was deceased in the desert. They can never fix this. You're you're 100 right. That's so true. Joe 100%. Murray. Joe Murray's not done. Joe, thank you for the night. <laughs> thank you for the 1999 super chat, man. You better be making 550 an hour to throw me all this money. The, go <laughs> the government charged him with the wrong wrong subsection on the warrant. They filed a motion to seal the indictment. It was granted. Then the very next day, the government moved to unseal the indictment. They are boobs. Shame. Wow. Is that true? That's Is what Joe, really? Joe, Joe Murray, they, counselor at law, you know. They very well may be boobs. They very well may be boobs. They are boobs. Team. First but, of all, uh, how do you seal the indictment? The guy is under indictment. I don't get the sealing the FBI and their, and their powers to classify everything. I, I don't get how there's no checks and balances. You guys can't say, hey, we want to seal this arrest warrant. You know, you can call me at the Daily News, and if we have a good relationship, which is what reporters do not do anymore, it builds relationships, you can say, McPhee, can you hold off on this? Don't write about this guy because yeah. we're going to scoop him up right. in a couple of days. Sit on it. Can you sit on yeah. it for two days? I would do that. Billy, you got to let me read this one, please. Go ahead, Phil. Go ahead, Phil. You read this one. <laughs> one. Thank you for the $5 super chat. Joe Murray is all jacked up on Matt and Do. LOL. I love you, Joe. That is great. He's he, listening. He's got to be foaming at the mouth right about now. He's fired up. But that's good. That shows he's a true good defense attorney. He's arguing love his it. point. I love him. I love him. Oh my love God, it. Joe, you you you're doing more. Joe Murray again. Four ninety nine. Thank you. 
I'm sure that they do have compassion and they love Gabby very much. But as an attorney, I would say the same thing. No talking to anyone. Yeah, that's okay. Mm, no. No, listen. Yeah, not at the beginning. Not before her body was found. No, no, no. I, 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 I'm, I'm talking, I'm referencing if he's taken into custody, telling him not to say anything, I get it. But when yeah, she's a missing person, that family had a, a necessary obligation to tell that family she was living under their roof. They should have definitely said, look, he's back. We don't know where she is. Something. They should have did something. And they made themselves look worse. And I just think that they're, they're probably as bad narcissistic, self-absorbing people as he is because he's a he's obviously uh, an abuser and a self-absorbing narcissist, and he might have learned it from his parents. Who knows? You know, Phil, I have to read this. Lioness 59. Wow. What's up with Joe tonight? Litig I can't even pronounce this. Lit Litigationionius hyperactus. <laughs> <laughs> I almost can't pronounce that. Here's another a retired police, uh, Charles Pizzo. Thank you for the $5 super chat. Dogs are wannabe cop who need attention and the spotlight, not about the Vicks or the family. It's all about me day. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I don't think dog is finding anything that belongs to uh, Brian Laundrie. I think he's finding stuff and say, hey, look at this. You know, the only thing he's doing, he's shining a light and he's putting more people to, to, see the face of Brian Laundry, see the face of Gabby Petito. And, you know, you never know. I, I don't have a problem with him being involved in it. You're right. He's, he's not a real cop or anything like that, and, but he, he has a lot of people. He has a huge audience and, you know, people may, you never know. Somebody that's watching him might spot Brian or something like that, or may have seen something that might be important to the case. So as, as many eyes on this as possible, I think would lead to a, a possible good I conclusion, but. He is someone, a, someone saying that Joe should lay off the Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> Judy Ron, I love I love that line. You <laughs> getting jacked up so on good. Mountain Dew. That was go good. ahead, Michelle. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, that was one of the best movies of all time, Talladega Nights. I, now I can't get it out of my head. It'll be like an earworm. You're all jacked up on Mountain Dew. Oh my God. <laughs> You know, we're at like uh, an hour and 17 minutes, and I usually don't like to go this long, but it's been so interesting. And folks, if you're not subscribed to Police Off The Cuff, please hit our um, YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button, ring that bell, give us a thumbs up, tell us in the chat how much you love us, tell, that, tell us that you love Phil straight out of Brooklyn, you love that Brooklyn accent, you love uh, my Long Island accent, and uh, <laughs> you love Michelle McPhee's Boston accent. By way of Hollywood, she's going to make it big in the on the left coast if she can stand it over there, you know. But uh, if I can last, if I can last that long, if you can last that long on the left coast, but you know something, look, she's got know, her baseball bat, y'all. Don't forget, nobody better play with her. That's you know we have Listen, a lot it of. It is interesting how how easy it is to get people to back down here. They're not, they're not used to people like us, so we usually <laughs> win every argument. I I'm like it. wrong girl, wrong girl. That's all you need to say. And you're, wow, you're that 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 Boston, that Boston accent is intimidating. You know, I know Whitey Bulger. <laughs> <laughs> Whitey Bulger's my uncle. <laughs> Speaking of the FBI, <laughs> yeah, yeah you know, right, right. You know, folks, we have a we love to laugh on this show too. Besides covering serious topics, there's got to be humor because it's, it can be a long show and there's a lot of funny stuff. And law enforcement, some of the funniest people I ever met in my life were cops. And Phil, I, I'm sure you'll agree with that. And Michelle, oh, you'll yeah. probably agree with that too. Definitely. Uh, 
Uh, Duty Ron says, I hope everyone knows it. Thanks for the $5 super chat, Duty Ron. He says, I hope that everyone knows that Dog is a convicted murderer. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And it seems I, like his audience would be in the Appalachians. So if you're going to watch Dog the Bounty Hunter, I'm pretty sure you live in the Appalachians. You know, Michelle, I'm definitely going to look for a guy named Cat from Harlem and try to start a police. <laughs> <laughs> so try to start a bounty hunter show with a dude named Cat. That would be so great. <laughs> If him, dog, if him and dog were competing against each other, dog and cat are looking for the same guy. Right now, these <laughs> producers are taking notes in LA saying, ah, that's a great idea. That's a great idea for a show. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Don't, that, don't that's, <laughs> that's pretty interesting though, that he's a convicted murderer. I didn't know that either. I mean, I, he looked like a sketchy that. guy, but I figure if he's got a bounty hunter's license, he can't be, uh, I guess it, they can give it to a convicted murderer. I didn't know that. Well, I didn't know that either. Yeah, it sounds he looks like the dude. He's he really does look like the guy that shot Alec Murdoch in the head, though. They kind of look alike. He looks a little yeah. bit like him. Yeah, he yeah. does. You know, someone else, someone else yeah. said that uh, if you find Cat, can he be a guest on the show? <laughs> Absolutely. He's, if I find a proper cat that's like cool and he dresses cool and he's big, cool cat, cool cat, I'll have him on the show in a minute. Cool cat, the bounty hunter, coming that's to right. a, a podcast near you. <laughs> in fact, we hired him to compete with Dog. Look at this guy from Harlem. His name's Cat. <laughs> I would love that's that. Awesome. That'd be great. Yeah. So, Michelle, you know, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show, and you have to promise us. Uh, to come back on because we just basically scratched the surface. We didn't even get that far. So would you come back on another time? Are you kidding me? This is a blast. I would do this every night. Uh, great. Well, the now, stories what, I love talking about. What's the name of your podcast again? Because I put it up, but it's out. Of, the chat just got it through. What's the name of it? It's called Mayhem with Michelle McPhee. You can get it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, but you can go to mayhempod.com and, you, and all of the platforms are there. M-A-Y-H-E-M pod, that word pod, dot com. And you know, and I I'm just, sending you guys books to give away to your audience next time. Oh, that'd be, that would be fantastic. Thank you very much. I want that Boston marathon book. That's the one I really want to read. Cause I, I'm, that really interests me. And I, I took a special interest in the Watertown police when I saw what those guys did and what, well, you know, something we talk about PTSD. Do you think those guys might have it? I'd say they hundred percent have it. Having bombs 100%. thrown at them, you know, and uh, they should be Don't taken forget, care like, of. When they should be. These, remember, these sergeants, they got into a, a bomb and bullet battle. There's bombs being tossed. I mean, a pressure cooker bomb, pipe bombs. Uh, and in the end, it was Jahar that ran over his brother and dragged him to his death. So a sergeant named Jeffrey Pugliese shot Tamalin nine times. Tamalin who was clearly well-trained because he came right at him like he was in the military down the street with guns blazing. He got so frustrated when he ran out of bullets, he threw the gun at Sergeant Pugliese, who had him on the ground, was wrestling with him. Sergeant McClellan, who you referenced, Joe Reynolds, all these guys are on top of him. He's so strong that, you know, they can't even get the cops on him because he kept you know, fighting them. And then Jahar, his little brother, jumps behind the wheel of that stolen SUV guns it to try to get the cops and instead he drags his brother you know about 60 feet to his death he gets scalped and he's still alive you know poetic justice that that yeah poetic justice that that he killed his own brother yeah that's great duty ron in 1976 thank you for the ten dollar super chat chapman was convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to five years in a texas prison he had been waiting in a getaway car while his friend shot and killed 
Jerry Oliver, 69. Wow. So so there it is. There it is. You know, Why do you get a license to carry as yeah. a convicted uh, murderer? Is that I don't know. He doesn't. Carry. They, carry, they carry those big mace canisters. It's, yeah, he, so doesn't, he doesn't carry oh, really? a firearm. He doesn't carry a firearm. How does he get the license to be a bounty hunter? That's the other question. Then First degree murder, five years. I, I, that whole thing doesn't sound, uh, I believe, duty run, obviously, but uh, sounds real sketchy. To you me. know, the last, the last uh, super chat from Joe Murray, because I know he's breaking open his piggy bank and he's seen if he has enough money he's on his second pool leader he broke up with his second piggy bank during this show he wrote uh freedom let's see all the american flags in the chat if you love the constitution and the usa us us usa usa that's joe murray joe we love you and we're so happy that you've 99 percent or 95 percent cured of covid because uh we missed having you in the chat you know t michelle smith a new member of the police off the cuff family. Thank you so much for joining the family. Joe Murray keeps saying US, US, US. Uh, wow, the, the a lot chat of flags was going up too in the chat. A lot of a lot of flags coming up. Dawn Marie, good to see you here. Princess Mitch, good to see you here. Maui Swift, I love that name. Joe Murray, you're, you're all over this chat. I don't know how you're so quick at typing. I guess he's. He's typing up his own paperwork as a lawyer. You, know? you drink two liters of Mountain Dew. You'll be typing quick, too. That's what it is. He's super fast. <laughs> He's definitely super fast. Lieutenant Peter Pranzo, Harlem Raiders, great to see you. And Richella, I'm sure Richella's in the chat somewhere. But uh, Joe Murray's jacked up, you know, and, and he lost 25 pounds. He was, at a, he was a 300-pounder for a while. I wouldn't want to get hit with that left hook of a 300-pound oh, that... left hook. He was yeah. – he was, <laughs> yeah, he's got a habit of knocking out detectives too, so I'll stay away from him. You're right. You got to stay away from Joe Murray. <laughs> so, you know, guys, I'm so we're, we're, we're at an hour twenty five, folks. Yeah, we're on behalf of Police Off the Cuff, uh, my partner, uh, co co host Phil Grimaldi, and and Michelle McPhee. Thank you guys so much for listening tonight. We had a ball. We had a lot of fun. Oh, it went so I told you, Michelle, the hour will fly by, and sure enough, it's an hour and 25 minutes. So I'm sorry I kept you this long, but not really. Oh, are you kidding? But, I had a blast. All right. It was so great to meet you, Michelle. Thank you for coming great on. To and meet please you too. come on again. And, and we have to uh we have to meet up sometime when you're in the area, when you're in New York. Are you kidding Absolutely. me? I can't wait to go to Spumoni Gardens now. It's I can't wait to go to Spumoni Gardens either. I just hear so much about Spumoni Gardens. I got to go there. Anyway, <laughs> I like the way she says it. Spumoni Gardens. Gardens. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Thank you so Good much night. for listening. Thank you. Stay Bye safe, now. everyone.